0: All right. Well, hey, good morning, Grace. If you uh, speaking of children, it is time to release the children to go with uh, Mr. Nick there in the back. So, kids, if if you are here, you are welcome to do that and to follow him out. All right. And if you got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me today to John's Gospel, John chapter twenty-one is is uh, is where we're going to be today, John chapter 21. And all of the buzz this week, social media, on the news, around the water cooler at the office has been around the, quote, end game. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. The end game of the, uh, the Avengers series. And closely behind that, in terms of buzz, has been all of the questions and, and just wondering, what about the end game for the Gospel of John series that's been going on at Grace Community Church for 48 weeks? What is the end game? And so I thought, you know, in fitting with the whole Avengers thing and the length of that movie, my plan is to preach for three hours today (laughs) and to see who survives the end game. Uh, But before we do that, let's pray. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for this community of people, children, parents, grandparents, uh, young adults, single, married, just the community that you've brought together. Thank you for the gospel of John, the chance to dive deep into your word. And today as we conclude this series that we've been in, we pray that you would speak to us for our post-Easter lives, that you would give us ears to hear the things that you want us to hear and eyes to see in Christ's name, amen, amen. Well on a much less uh, sort of lighthearted note to the Avengers endgame, a couple weeks ago was Easter Sunday and while we were celebrating here and just a big crowd of people having fun with family and friends and worshiping and uh, just glorying in the truth of the resurrection on the other side of the world, in a country of Sri Lanka, I'm sure you've heard that they had a very different Easter Sunday morning. And a series of attacks took place and 253 people were killed by suicide bombers in Sri Lanka, many of them in their churches as they celebrated the resurrection. Uh, Many of them um, young children in Sunday school. Who were killed in this just really this horrible attack and i brought another picture this is a picture of a young man from from america from washington dc he's a fifth grader named kieran shafritz de zoya and i'm I'm sure i messed that up but his dad is is an american his mom is sri lanka and he was there in, in sri lanka he was actually on the phone with his dad and they'd been texting and talking and all of a sudden the phone went dead and he, wouldn't, he wasn't able to pick up what, what happened, what happened. And his father came to learn later that his, that his young fifth grade son was killed in these series of suicide bombings on Easter Sunday morning. And I was reading news articles, as probably many of you were in the, in the you know, aftermath of this. And one of the lines that his father said in this, this article stood out to me. It said that he was just a foot in the wrong direction. And because of where he was standing, a piece of shrapnel from this suicide bomb pierced his heart and he lost his life. And his father was just asked, like, what in the world, God? Here we are, we're celebrating a miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, a God who raises the dead. And in the midst of the celebration of life, there is death. And in some ways, that's what it means to be a Christian. In the midst of resurrection life, we still are confronted with tragedy. And not just in really extreme cases like in Sri Lanka with the bombings that took place, but in in your experience, tragedies. And there's this question like, God, if you raise the dead, if you do miracles like we believe that you do, then the question could be framed really simply like this. Why does God do miracles In some instances, and not in others. Kirian's dad was just a foot in the wrong direction. He said, God, why? Why does God do miracles in some instances and not others? And I have some bad news today. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of questions that I don't know the answer to. But in some ways, this is a fitting question and a fitting sort of introduction to this passage because our passage involves a miracle. Jesus does a miracle in this passage. It might seem like kind of a frivolous miracle. It's a miracle about a a catch of fish, a bunch of fish. But alongside the miracle in the passage, there is a promise of future suffering, from one of Jesus' followers, a guy with the name of Peter. And so right alongside each other you have a God who does miracles and a God who says and yet you will suffer without a sort of miraculous escape or intervention in your life. And then alongside those two realities, the miracle, the suffering, there is this this third thing. There's a there's a meal that Jesus provides. And so we're going to celebrate communion today in in sort of fitting fashion with regard to the, the content of the passage. So, John chapter 1, beginning in, uh, sorry, verse, we, we're not going to start over and do the whole gospel again, just FYI, an end game. Uh, John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to His disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way, No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is, this is God's word. It's a passage about a miracle, and it's a miracle that uh, it might seem kind of frivolous. He's not raising the dead. He's not healing a blind person. He's providing fish for some guys who haven't caught any fish all night. He's meeting a physical need, and it involves some fish. But one of the things that becomes apparent when we read the passage is that it's not about the fish, it's not, it's not really about the fish. It's not that Jesus' primary concern is that the disciples would catch 153 fish. It's not about the fish. It's about the sheep, so to speak. It's not about the fish. It's about The sheep. And I want to talk about what that means because it would sound like I'm just rehearsing names of animals or something if I don't explain it. And it's not about the fish. What I mean is the purpose of the miracle is not just to meet a physical need of a lack of fish, but to lift our our gaze, our eyes, to Jesus so that we see him as he is the point is not just about fish the point is to lift the gaze the eyes of the disciples so that they see jesus as he is as as lord and there's that line where john says it is the Lord. And all of a sudden, Peter loses his mind, as he often does, right? It says literally in the Greek uh, that he, he was naked, fishing naked, but that's probably not literally true. He probably just had his undergarment on. He had taken his overcoat off. It was hot. It's hard work fishing. And it says he's so like discombobulated that he puts his heavy overcoat back on, dives in the water, and swims 100 yards to shore, Right? which I have never seen Michael Phelps do that, right? I've never seen him. You know what? I'm just going to wear a trench coat and swim. Like, it doesn't seem like a great idea, but Peter's just so like kind of freaked out. It's Jesus, and he's just, he's betrayed Jesus, and now he's risen, and he has to get to Jesus. But it's, it's not about the fish. It's about seeing Jesus for who he is as, as Lord. And the tendency for all of us, not just the disciples, The tendency post-Easter, I think, here we are two weeks after Easter, the tendency post-Easter is to just go back to fishing. Amen? To just go back to our pre-Easter routine that we just go through the motions. This is what we do. We're fishing, right? The tendency post-Easter is to just go back to fishing in our old routine, and that's what the disciples have done. And the commentators, there's all sorts of questions around this passage, and I have, ve- have answers to very few of them. But one of the questions they ask is, when the disciples decide to just go back to fishing, is that actually kind of like a bad thing? Is that sort of like a rejection of their calling to be apostles? And they're like, all right, Jesus resurrected. Let's just go back to fishing though. Or is it just like a neutral thing? It's like, well, I mean, I go fishing with my kid. (laughs) It's not a rejection of my calling as a minister, right? What does it mean that they've just gone back to fishing? I don't know. I don't necessarily read it as like a rejection of their calling, but it is sort of just slipping back into the pre-Easter routine. And I think we do that. Like, yeah, Jesus is resurrected. Hallelujah. And then we just sort of slip back into our see you next Easter, pastor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> see you at Christmas. And we slide into the pre-Easter routine, back to fishing. And I am a creature of routines. All right? My wife knows this. She's like, yep, yeah, you, you are. I do the same thing the same way every day. Pretty much. I get up at the same time. It doesn't matter if I have work or not. I get up at the same time. It doesn't matter if the semester's over or not. I get up. I do the same thing in the same way. And some of those routines are good, right? So, routines can be good, like working out is a good routine, or, you know, doing the dishes is a good routine right? sometimes. And so, it's not that routines are bad, but the sense is that the disciples have just sort of slipped back into their pre Easter routine. Routine And they don't need fish, ultimately. They need a fresh vision of the resurrected Jesus, just like we do. And sometimes I think God does a miracle in our life. He shows up in our life, not just to meet a physical need, but to lift our perspective to him so that we see him for who he is. And the proof of this that in some ways the physical miracle isn't the ultimate point, is that literally everybody Jesus ever healed still died, (laughs) right? Everybody, Lazarus, there came a time where he's like, I remember this feeling, you know? And then it, 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 because the point ultimately is not to just give you a prolonged fallen existence and a prolonged fallen life, but to give you an eternal resurrected existence. And so God uses miracles sometimes to lift our perspective, to to see the risen Jesus. The fish aren't the ultimate point. I brought a picture of a fish. This is my son, Ewan, and uh, this is him last year at Table Rock Lake. And normally we just do water sports, because Brianna's family is a water sport family, not a fishing family. All right, and he gets very upset if you try to fish off of his mastercraft, it's like blasphemy, the veil of the temple will tear, you know. So, but Ewan never got the memo, and he just wants to fish. His, his favorite thing in the world is fishing, and I know that because I hear about it every single day. Right? it could be the middle of winter, and he's like, Dad, can we go fishing today? <laughs> he loves fishing. Fishing, and so here he is with this little fish. But the, the, even for Ewan, who is just crazy about fish, the fish, really aren't the point. And so, if I because I know he loves fishing, if I say, "Hey, son, check it out," and I just throw a packet of frozen fish sticks on the counter, he's not going to be impressed. He's <laughs> like, I, I, "Yeah, but that's not what I'm wanting." You know, even if I put a nice cut of salmon in front of him, he'd be like, "Gross, I don't like salmon." Right. Because in, in the fish themselves aren't the point, and probably he couldn't even articulate it this way, but the point is something much bigger. It's about time with his dad, it's about catching the experience of catch. It's not just about the fish, it's about something way bigger than the fish. And it's the same way for the disciples in this passage. Um, maybe the application for us. Is to, is to come to this realization that Jesus wants to bless us. He wants to give us good gifts. Some of those gifts are through miraculous answers to prayer and whatnot. But and he talks about how God is like a loving father. And it's not like when you ask him for some bread, he's like, here's a stone. You know, munch on that. He, he wants to give his children good gifts. But the ultimate gift, the best gift, capital G, is Himself. He wants us to raise our eyes from just the fish to see, to see Him and to experience Him post-Easter instead of just slipping back into the pre-Easter routines. It's not about the fish, it's about the sheep. And so we need to talk about the second animal, the sheep. Verse 15, we'll pick up and talk about that. It says this in the passage, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, And there's a, there's a lot of questions, both literally and figuratively, that sort of swirl around this, this passage. But, but one of the questions, so many questions, but one of them is, Peter, do you love me more than these, Jesus says? And there's a commentator sort of debate this. I mean, the, the sense is, the normal sense is that Jesus, when he says these, he means, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Do you love me the most? Because that was the thing that Peter was always bragging about. Like, everybody else will abandon you, but I will not. I love you the most was the implication for Peter. And so sometimes the thought is, well, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples? Other commentators say that what if the these is not the other disciples, but what if it is this old routine, the fishing here they sit, surrounded by the fishing tackle and the boats, they're by the lake, the fish are grilling, and, and what if Jesus is gesturing towards the fish and the tackle, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than all this? Your, your, your old life, your old vocation, as I'm just a fisherman, I'm not an apostle, I'm just, a, you know, just, just the fish, Right. Do you love me more than these? And the text doesn't say for sure. Then there's the question of why Jesus repeats the question three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love? And he keeps coming back to it three different times. And so the most common suggestion is that, well, Peter denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus is asking him three times, do you love me? right? And it might seem kind of cruel. It's like, so three denials. And then you just kind of keep hammering on that question, but we don't, the text again, doesn't say exactly explicitly why three times, but it does say this very explicitly. Jesus's concern is for the sheep. That's what he keeps coming back to. Feed my sheep. And so the tendency for pastors and commentators is to lose the forest for the trees. And we're like, who are the these? And why are the three times? And why does he use different Greek words for, you know, for love? But, but the one thing that's crystal clear is it's about the sheep. Feed my sheep, Jesus says. And maybe you could put it this way. When Christ shows up in our lives, when he does something and he shows up miraculously Our calling is then to pass that blessing on to others. Our calling is to feed the sheep. It's not about the fish. It's about the sheep. He doesn't say feed on the sheep. That would be quite different, right? And that's sometimes a mistake that there's all these sheep and I'm hungry, right? He doesn't say feed on the sheep. He doesn't say come to resent the sheep, which is another danger in ministry. The question often is asked, well, why are Christians compared to sheep? And some people say, well, sheep are dumb. (laughs) They need a shepherd. And so we are called sheep because we need a shepherd. We're not autonomous. I don't know a single Fortune 500 company run by a literal sheep. They don't do that. Um, They need a shepherd. They're limited in their ability to care for themselves. And so he doesn't say feed on the sheep. He, he, he doesn't say to resent the sheep. He says to, to feed the sheep. It's, it's a call to serve. It's a call to serve the people of God, not just for pastors or preachers, or, but for everybody, feed the sheep. And one of the things I think is easy to miss is lots of Christians want to eat the fish with Jesus. Not so many want to feed the sheep. Amen? Eating is fun. I love eating. It's one of my routines. (laughs) And everybody wants to sit and eat the fish with Jesus. But it's more difficult to get up and do the chores around the farm to, to feed the sheep. And so the passage is very clear. It's not about the fish. It's not just about the things that Jesus can give you. It's about the call to, to feed, to serve the sheep. Maybe the question for you is, okay, how am I feeding the sheep? Because sometimes we have this sense that, well, that's just the pastor's job to feed the sheep, right? But my sense is that, that that's not the case, that all Christians are called to, to serve, to feed the sheep, so to speak. How am I feeding the sheep? Maybe for you, it's as a parent... You have like little lambs, little sheep, and for you the application is I need to step up and take responsibility to be the the primary spiritual guide, primary human spiritual guide for my children. Even if I don't know Greek and Hebrew and have it all figured out, I'm going to take responsibility to feed my sheep, not to just sort of outsource that to, to other people, but to to feed those sheep. Maybe it's to serve in in the community, to serve those who are less fortunate. Maybe it's to get plugged in and serving here. It's easy to eat the fish with Jesus, but he's calling us to, to feed others, to feed the sheep. It's not about the fish. It's about the sheep. That's the first observation in this passage. There's a second observation. I think you could say, based on what he says next... It's not just about fairness in our lives, it's about following. It's not just about what seems fair compared to other people, but it's about following in the way he's called us to follow. And we see this in verse 18 through verse 22, he goes on in verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, he's talking to Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down And we know his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And so the second point is it's not just about fairness in our lives. It's about a call to follow the path that Jesus has laid out for us. And and we see that Peter's, I love that Peter is like the most human character in the gospels because he just, he's just so, he says exactly what he thinks. And so his first response, Jesus basically is using this kind of euphemism, this nice sounding metaphor to say, Peter, you're going to die like I died. You're going to get crucified. And so he says, when you're older, Peter, you're going to stretch out your hands and you're going to be crucified and you're going to be led where you don't want to go, namely to the execution stake. And that's what's going to happen, that you're going to suffer. And so Peter's first response is not like, is there any way out of this? Or why do I have to suffer? His first response is, what about that guy? <laughs> it's like he could endure the cross if he knew that John was going to have to endure it too. <laughs> that was the, it, was the, it was this sort of sense of fairness and comparison with his surrounding disciples that he was most concerned with. And I wonder how often for us, how often do questions of fairness and comparison keep us from just following? Amen? Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. How often do questions of fairness and comparison keep us from following the way Jesus calls us to? I I see this when I, whenever I hang around people or go to different places and people who are different tax brackets than me, right? You're just like, well, I didn't even really want that, but now I'm around you and I kind of do. And I'm kind of not happy about it, right? Well, what about him? Like, that's not fair. There's this sense of comparison that sort of springs up in us that makes us envious, that makes us unhappy when moments ago we were fine and we want to know about other people with regard to fairness. Peter's question, Lord, what about him? This is a question I hear about 75,000 times a day in my house. (laughs) That's not fair, right? What is that to you? You follow me. I brought a, a picture of a French literary critic not going to do anything with it. I just wanted to put it up there. No, this is a guy named René Girard. He was a French literary critic. He died a couple years ago, and he was an incredible, brilliant scholar. He started out as an atheist, and he began to study the Bible just as an ancient text. And he has this interesting quote. He says, mine, he's talking about his research. He says, mine is a search for the anthropology of the cross, which turns out to rehabilitate orthodox theology. What he means is, I just started studying these ancient texts. I wasn't a believer. I was an atheist. I was just an anthropologist. And then I saw their truth, and I became a follower of Jesus. And in 1959, he underwent a profound conversion uh, because of his study of the Gospels. And one of his big insights for Girard is this idea of how human desire works, the origin of desire And I don't agree with him on everything. Um, I don't agree with myself on everything. But he he says this, essentially, we want what we see others wanting. We want what we see others having. And so desire is in many cases contagious. (laughs) You catch it the way you catch the flu. And he says you can see this just illustrated perfectly with children where there's a toy laying on the ground. Nobody wants it. It's probably broken. It's probably a doll with like a busted head, you know, and the, and the child does not want the toy at all until the child sees her sibling just walking near it. <laughs> and she, she, and it, the toy starts glowing with, de, with desirableness. <laughs> that we want things in many cases, not all cases, because we see other people wanting them, or we see other people having them, that so many of our frustrations come from a kind of covetousness. Girard says, that's why the last command matters, because it's through that that we get off track. Peter's question, like, what about him? That's not fair. There's this comparison game, this envy of other people's lives and callings in, in their paths. But it's not about fairness. It's about following. Maybe the question for you is, okay, how have I allowed a concern for what seems fair to distract me from just following? A desire to have somebody else's life or somebody else's gifts or somebody else's Future, in the same way Peter is now distracted by John, he's distracted by this sense of what is fair. How have I allowed that sense of fairness to become a distractor that keeps me from following? It's not about fairness, it's about following Christ. And if we stop there, this would be, I mean, it would kind of be sort of a browbeater kind of message. You know, it's like, it's, it's not about fair. Life isn't fair. You know, you've probably heard that. That would be, that's kind of a downer, man. We're going to end the series on that. Like, um, it would sort of be a sort of browbeating message. But thankfully, Jesus, as he always does, in the midst of difficult commands, like follow me, he always weaves in empowering, sustaining grace. There's always grace and gift that empowers obedience. And one of the ways we see that in this passage is kind of a weird big idea. The gospel ends with breakfast. John's gospel ends with breakfast. And the command that Jesus gives to his followers in verse 12 is literally, come and have breakfast. And what's fascinating is when the disciples get there, they think they're bringing breakfast. Like Peter's like, I'll do it. And he pulls it in, you know, but when they get there, the table is already set. Jesus has already got the fish grilling on the fire. And it says he even has brought bread. You're Like where did the bread, is it like a walking Panera? How did he get the bread? Right? And and John's gospel does not have the traditional communion passage like the synoptic gospels do. But in some ways, this last scene in John's gospel is Jesus serving breakfast. Breakfast is a meal of beginnings. It's the meal you eat before you go out and do the work. It's, it's not a meal of endings. I guess if you work the night shift, it is. But, but it's a meal of beginnings. And it's like Jesus is saying, you're going, to, you're going to have to follow me. You're going to experience both miraculous successes and suffering, crushing defeats that are going to make you question my fairness. And God, why do you do a miracle here and not over here? But in the midst of that, before I send you out into that life, the table has been set. And I'm, I'm asking you, Not to just do some hard thing. I'm filling you first before I send you out. And the bread, he says elsewhere, is is a symbol for his body. Jesus fills us with himself. Communion itself is the perfect culmination to a gospel about word made flesh. He says, the bread is a picture of my flesh. The wine is a picture of my blood. And I'm not just asking you to go out and suck it up. I'm filling you for the journey so that you can follow me. The gospel ends with breakfast. God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your gift the gift of your Son. We thank you that you have set the table for us, that you have given us the ultimate gift. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.